Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. We've talked, obviously, about the ongoing implication of the war in Ukraine and, and uh, the implications it's having on some of the, the member nations, of course, in the G7 and others. And, and one that comes to mind right off the bat that's uh, being heavily impacted is Germany, uh, because they still have some reliance on, on Russian oil and, and Russian gas, for that matter. And uh, the Russians apparently are playing games once again. German officials say that Russia's three-day maintenance shutdown of the crucial Nord Stream gas pipeline in Germany is not necessary and they fear the temporary supply freeze could actually continue. Try to get some uh, context in this. We're so pleased to welcome back to the program uh, Aura Brown, who is a professor of international relations and a senior member of the Monk School of Global Affairs at the University of Toronto. Uh, professor, always a pleasure. Thank you so much for the time today. Thank you. What are the Russians up to here? They are clearly exercising pressure on Germany. Ge- Germany has the largest economy in, uh, in Europe. Uh, Germany has the capacity to provide a great deal of economic help, even military help, to Ukraine. And uh, there's a kind of irony in this because uh, Germany had pressured Canada to agree to return a turbine, a very mm-hmm. large crucial turbine that we were repairing for this pipeline. Uh, there were those who were saying that this would be violating sanctions. And our prime minister said, well, you know, we're not using sanctions against allies. And despite all of this, uh, Despite blinking in, in terms of uh, Russian pressure, the Russians are cutting off uh, the supply of uh, energy. And the message that Vladimir Putin is trying to send to the Europeans is that you may have a great many resources militarily, economically, but you have become very dependent on energy, and we will use that to wreak havoc on your economies. Uh, is is this the beginning? I mean, as as you say, there's some concern within the German government right now that, uh, first of all, that this is not necessary. They're just doing this to send a message. Uh, but this could be a, a, an ongoing tactic, couldn't it? Absolutely. And this is why it's so essential to get as much energy onto the market. Uh, we all understand that there's a climate imperative and we have to be very careful about not damaging the environment. But uh, the, these are emergency conditions where Ukraine people are dying on on the ground because uh, Russia is uh, able to get all the revenues, uh, Russia's oil revenues, for example, a larger this year than they were last year. Uh, And that helps the Russian war machine. So energy uh, is something that allows Russia to do a lot of the killing. And uh, the absence of energy has an impact uh, on the economies of our allies. It has an impact on our economy. We know the increase in energy fuel prices here as well. And it is having a devastating effect in terms of food security because uh, food has to be transported. Um, uh, Often uh, some of uh, what is used in agriculture is derived uh, from, uh, in terms of fertilizer and so on, uh, uses um, chemicals that are derived partly from uh, energy sources. So um, this is a situation where we have to make sure that there's enough energy on the market uh, while Ukraine sustains its resistance to the Russian invasion. We have to make sure that Russia does not benefit from the fact that uh, China and India are willing to break the sanctions and are happy to buy Russian energy, and they'll be buying it in large quantities to uh, replace us. And uh, 
uh, we can see already that in places like Germany, they're going uh, for coal uh, as an emergency resource, and that is very much more polluting than natural gas. And the Germans who are going to eliminate nuclear power altogether are keeping some of the nuclear reactors going. So we have to very seriously look at an interim energy policy that will sustain our economies and uh, contribute to defeat of this uh, aggression by Russia. But the politics in this is, uh, well, it's it's stark and it's it's clearly obvious, isn't it, Professor? Uh, especially when it comes to uh, turning down the, the, the gas when it comes to their, their exports to Germany. Uh, and again, they're, they're saying, well, we're not up to full speed. And that you're right, they brought up the, the turbine that was uh, being repaired in Montreal, of course. Uh, but they don't want it back now. They're saying it's inferior product or you've done something to it or something. I mean, so even when we were compliant with them, and, and as you say, you know, I think there was a lot of political pressure here not to do this, but they went ahead with it anyway. The Russians say, so what? We're still, you know, we're not we're not going to use it, so we're still shorthand, so there are going to be shortages. I mean, they, they've got this mindset that they, they just want to make life miserable for the Germans in particular here, and it doesn't matter what we do to try to placate them. Vladimir Putin likes to play mind games. Uh, often, because he's the leader, leader of Russia, uh, he is uh, supposed to be a chess player. But in fact, he's playing poker. He bluffs. Uh, he manipulates. And uh, he tested the West. Would we resist? Would we refuse to repair the turbine? We caved in. And now he's using another game to say, well, it's still not good enough. It's a kind of cat and mouse game. It's part of psychological warfare. It's a very dangerous game. And we need to be aware of that, that we are subjected to this uh, kind of pressure. And all of this ought not to have been surprising. The West and Germany in particular had allowed uh, ourselves to become dependent on Russian energy on the assumption that there was going to be interdependence where Russia, in exchange for the money that they're getting from us collectively, the West, would never use energy as a means of pressure. Well they uh, used it before versus Ukraine, they used it versus Poland. I don't understand why we thought that we in the West would be immune. It, but, the, but the mind games here, as you say, that Putin playing here, it, it, but you know, they're dealing with lives here too with Germany. I mean, you know, the weather's going to get cold pretty soon. Uh, and the concern here is that, uh, as some experts have looked at, and I think you just alluded to, Professor, uh, the concern here is that this is really just the beginning of these on and off of things. Uh, Siemens has weighed in on this. Siemens, of course, uh, were the ones that were doing the repairs and have done, I guess, repairs on these uh, these uh, turbines for quite some time. And uh, they say that they are not aware that any kind of work or any kind of maintenance needed to be done on them. They're, they're not involved in this particular case, but they know the product and they know what, the, what the, it's supposed to be doing. So clearly that there, there's no mechanical, there's no legitimate reason for this to happen. Uh, and the fact that they've refused the turbine kind of indicates that they, they want to still pretend that they don't have the capability to produce this right now. Uh, but they know that that's not the case. Uh, they know that we know that's not the case, though, don't they? Yes, yes, they do. And uh, the way Vladimir Putin views this is that the big lie works. He can tell uh, the Russian people anything he wants. He controls the media. And he can manipulate the West. And when he tested us, we failed. That we could have said uh, there are sanctions and we're not returning the turbine. We're not uh, fixing the turbine. And uh, Russia will have to do with, with what they have. Uh, because obviously, uh, they have the capacity to pump uh, fuel without that uh, turbine. 
but we did not want to let Germany down. We uh, wanted to be cooperative uh, with Germany. And this is how uh, Vladimir Putin uh, is very good at manipulating us. And as long as he believes that he can manipulate the West, uh, and as long as he has evidence, even of small successes, that continues to embolden him. And in order to bring this conflict to an end in a way in which Ukraine is preserved as an independent state, as a viable country, we need to make sure, as Boris Johnson said, that not only is the Russian invasion, this illegal aggression in Ukraine defeated, but it is seen to be defeated. And if Vladimir Putin understands that there's an extremely heavy cost to, to be paid, so far, uh, in terms of the psychological warfare, we have not done very, very well. There appears to be progress on the ground, however. Ukraine is fighting back. They are uh, uh, pursuing a, a remarkable resistance that surprised uh, most experts, I would say. Uh, there was not an expectation that Ukraine would still be able to hold back the massive ras uh, Russian forces more than six months after this uh, all-out invasion of the country. Ukraine has used a tactic known as uh, ROC, Resistance Operating Strategy, that was uh, formulated in the United States, which is very creative, which involves uh, both tenacity uh, and resourcefulness. Uh, they have used uh, anything they could and converted that to their advantage in Ukraine, uh, inexpensive drones, loitering munitions, commercial satellites. Uh, it has surprised the world. And Ukraine has therefore shown that uh, it is worthy of, of uh, uh, being helped. It is not as in the case of some countries which uh, the West tried to help where the government was corrupt and the army ran away. Professor, can we connect those dots? Uh, we heard that earlier in, in, in our reporting, of course, about, the, the as you say, the counterattack that the Ukrainians have launched here in the southern areas. Uh, and we're told it's largely because of the final uh, delivery, of course, of a number of the weapons that, uh, that the, the West had promised them. And that, I guess they're using an awful lot of those against the Russians in that particular case. Is this Putin's reaction to that? We know that he wants to avoid uh, an all-out draft uh, and uh, to send conscripts into the battle because that would create problems at home. He has said that he is going to increase the active Russian forces by something like 137,000 people. Uh, that gives us uh, an idea uh, of the magnitude of the losses the Russians have uh, have suffered. Now, in any war, there is something called the fog of battle, and it's very difficult to discern exactly what is happening. In this particular case, the Ukrainian leadership has been very wise in not raising expectations that they cannot meet, in uh, using silence while they take action on the ground. President Zelensky said we're not going to signal to the enemy exactly what we're doing. But from various reports uh, uh, from Western sources, including the Ukrainian Minister of Defense, uh, we know that the Ukrainians have been advancing in uh, the Kherson Oblast, uh, Kherson uh, is the largest regional city that the Russians were able to conquer very early on. It's a crucial city, and uh, uh, the Russians during the past six months have been able to build several lines of defense. According to the British uh, Minister of Defense, Ukrainian forces appear to have been able to breach at least the first line of defense, but this is a slow operation. 
because unlike the Russians who are prepared to utterly raise cities and towns to the ground in order to make an advance, Ukrainian forces understand that uh, they are looking at their own people, their own cities, and they cannot just use artillery to level uh, ground uh, and kill people indiscriminately. They are trying to be as cautious as possible. So this is likely to be a slow process. We'll be watching that. I've got a couple of minutes left here, Professor. If I could, I, I wanted to get your perspective. Uh, earlier this week, uh, we learned of the uh, the death of Mikhail Gorbachev at age 91, uh, Soviet leader uh, with uh, uh, interesting history, uh, interesting times in which he was the leader too. Uh, I guess the obvious question from your perspective, what will Gorbachev's legacy be? It's very mixed. He has been lionized in the West, and Gorbachev was... Um, an odd individual in the sense that people in the West and in the East uh, had a tendency to project onto him that which they wanted to see. So we in the West and leaders in the West wanted to believe that he was some kind of liberal who wanted to bring democracy to the Soviet Union, uh, who set out to end the Cold War, to uh, bring freedom uh, and uh, rights, uh, uh, recognition of rights in the Soviet Union. Uh, and I think this was uh, a, a mistaken assumption uh, in many ways. Uh, uh, and in the case of uh, the Russians, he was viewed as someone who betrayed the Soviet Union, who caved into the West, who allowed for the uh, dissolution of the Soviet Union. And Vladimir Putin said that this was uh, the greatest uh, geopolitical uh, catastrophe of the 20th century. In reality, uh, uh, Gorbachev was neither of these uh, 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 characteristics or or uh, the person uh, that uh, these two opposing views would hold. He was not a liberal democrat. To the end of his days, he was a Marxist-Leninist. He uh, would repeat that the Leninist revolution, the Bolshevik revolution, which overthrew the provisional government, not the Tsar's government, there was already a social uh, democratic government, that, that uh, revolution was uh, justified. He shared with Vladimir Putin uh, the view that the dissolution, the breakup of the Soviet Union was a, a catastrophe. He had opposed that. Uh, he uh, talked about rights as a privilege, not as something that the government uh, recognized. So his view of democracy was very different from uh, our view. But to his credit, uh, when the collapse came in Eastern Europe, uh, he did not use massive military force to hold on to Eastern Europe, partly because he understood that this would be uh, something that would lead to war, including nuclear war, and wanted to avoid that. So he deserves credit in that sense. Uh, he had uh, this talent for uh, making a virtue out of necessity. Uh, in the case of the Soviet Union, he opposed the breakup of the Soviet Union. Uh, and he had very harsh views on Ukraine. In 2014, for example, he said that Vladimir Putin was right in annexing Crimea. He was banned by the Ukrainian government from, from visiting Ukraine because of such, uh, such uh, statements. So he uh, was a hawk in some ways. Uh, but... Uh, he was nonetheless a major historical figure. And I think that controversy 
about what he exactly did, what his intentions were, that will uh, that will continue. I would suggest, and I've written about this uh, long ago, that he was someone who did not really understand his own system. He did not understand that Marxism-Leninism, uh, the Soviet system, was an integrated system, and when he tried to reform it, that would not work because it would just just fall apart. He thought he could have it both ways. He could have a kind of gentle communist system, uh, but not uh, a Western-style democracy. That he could have people exercise some freedom, but that he would not use it to criticize him. So um, we have to take all of that into account. It's uh, interesting. That kind of goes back to the old series. You know, if you try to please everybody, you end up pleasing nobody. Uh, interesting legacy. Interesting man. Uh, the funeral, by the way, we're told it'll be in Moscow on uh, Saturday. Uh, Professor, always a pleasure to get you on the program. Thank you so much for this today. Thank you for having me on. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML.